0: Coming out to Allie as a Christian was much scarier than coming out to her as bi. The latter happened almost accidentally. It was early in our friendship, was fall of freshman year of college, and we were walking down the fluorescent lit hallway toward my dorm room, probably to watch a movie or something. And I guess we were talking about mean girls for some reason because I remember she quoted the line about being too gay to function. And without really thinking, I said, same. And I guess we like hadn't talked about that yet because I remember she spun around with like huge eyes and said, what? And in her defense, I was actively dating a man at this point. So I guess she was just caught off guard by like my cavalier identification with the term too gay to function. (laughs) Um, And so I explained that I was bi and she accepted it. And that was it. Like there was no real conversation. We moved on easy peasy. But at that point, I had already known for years that I was five. And Christian was an identifier that I would add later. And like any new label, it took time to get comfortable with to decide if it actually described me to come to terms with all the baggage that came with it and and wrestle with all the things that it was supposed to mean. So it was a little over a year later. And Allie, having firmly cemented herself in her role as my best friend, mostly by force at this point, (laughs) was visiting me in Austin over winter break. And we made our, by then, annual trip to Book People, which is the best independent bookstore in Texas and probably the world, and wandered through it together for a while before splitting up to peruse different sections. And I had just started going to church for the first time in my adult life. I had found a community I really loved and I believed that God loved me, but I found that that alone for some reason wasn't enough for me right then. Like I I had questions, you know, like a lot of questions and things my church wasn't really talking about, but that I knew other churches did. So it was like, should we be talking about these things? Why aren't we, you know, things like heaven and hell and crucifixions, salvation, all of that shit. You get the picture, you know, things I felt responsible for finding answers on because I knew what I didn't believe (laughs) and I didn't believe those things with a vengeance. But I found that knowing what I didn't believe wasn't nearly as satisfying as having something to believe in. I mean, that's why people usually come to religion, right? To have something to believe in. And there's nothing wrong with asking questions. I guess what I'm saying is that deep down, I felt like I was doing this whole faith thing wrong. So I ended up in the religion section, scanning the titles almost absentmindedly, wondering, just looking for answers. And one book jumped out at me. Some of you might be familiar with it. It was Love Wins by Rob Bell, which, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I guess it caught my eye because I'd seen the title before, you know, in association with like the marriage equality movement, especially after the Obergefell ruling, everybody was like, love wins. And I really liked that. Um, So I thought it was a good sign. And I pulled this little tiny book off the shelf, and the subtitle sealed the deal. It said, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived, which is a pretty sweeping declaration. And I bought the book uh, knowing that Allie would ask about it and not at all sure what I would tell her when she did. See, Allie's a scientist. Uh, She has been as long as I've known her. She's sharp as a tack, analytical, inquisitive. And I think that at least in part our friendship works because I'm all of those things too, just in different ways. She's getting her PhD in neurobiology at the Johns Hopkins University. We're very proud of her. I am doing this. <laughs> While not religious herself, she's never been anti-religion, but she just always has questions. You know, she genuinely wants to understand what people believe and why they believe it, and it's one of the many, many things I love about her. But at this point, I, did, I didn't know what I believed, and. Even still, I've never really had the answers, (laughs) at least not ones that completely satisfy her. And it sometimes drives me crazy, not because of her. I love that she is so curious and skeptical and just fucking brilliant in every way. But because I feel like I should have the answers, especially now. Had she lived 2000 years ago, Allie probably would have hated talking to Jesus. I think most of us would have. I'm pretty sure I would have. (laughs) See, Jesus was not the type of guy who likes to give a lot of straight answers. He was more likely to answer a question with a question or a parable, which is like a story that serves as a kind of extended metaphor or something else weird. And I imagine being his disciple would have been just really confusing (laughs) and also probably pretty infuriating most of the time. And in fact, it did piss off a lot of people. And there are a lot of times in scripture where his disciples are like, yikes, uh, Jesus, who can possibly accept this thing you just said? And Jesus is like, well, you're still here, aren't you? (laughs) I also think that's part of what made him such a deeply fascinating teacher to so many people. I mean, if a teacher just shows up and gives you the test and an answer key to go with it, why bother staying in the class? What would you actually discover about yourself and the world? And what can you possibly learn from someone who doesn't ask you to make your own connections and question your own assumptions and theirs and keep growing? Jesus was like that English teacher that I hope you had in high school, who when you asked a question would like look at you over their glasses in that infuriating way and say, with a little half smile, well, what do you think? Less concerned with you arriving at the exact right conclusion and more concerned with you getting somewhere on your own, trying new things, taking risks, and maybe even open to learning from you too. That teacher who drove you absolutely crazy because you just wanted to do well on the test, but who caused you to grow more than any of the teachers whose tests you aced because you told them exactly what they wanted to hear. Jesus was, is, like that. Jesus being a mysterious bastard is maybe the most visible in the Gospel of Mark where we have this thing that scholars like to call the messianic secret as in it's a secret that Jesus was the Messiah. Basically throughout the book, whenever Jesus does something miraculous or really interesting, like healing somebody or the transfiguration or other things that would seem to indicate that Jesus is like not just some wandering rabbi, but perhaps something more, he tells everybody to just like shut up about it and keep it to themselves. Don't tell anyone, he says. Uh, Don't even go into your village, he tells the blind man at the Seda after he gives insight, sight, and people usually ignore him on this point, but he still says it, and it's weird, especially when in Mark 8, Jesus and his disciples are walking on their way to Philippi, and he gives them what seems like a test, who do people say that I am? He asks casually, like he's just making conversation, and they call out, too eager to raise their hands, oh, John the Baptist! Elijah, one of the prophets. But then comes the next question. Who do you say that I am? He asks, and Peter, everyone's favorite fundamentally flawed teacher's pet, pipes up, you are the Messiah. And the text says that Jesus' only response to this really huge declaration is that he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Like, what the hell, Jesus? Why are you going around doing all this shit if not to demonstrate that you are, in fact, like, God's chosen Messiah, Son of God, whatever? You know, why wouldn't you want those who do figure it out to spread the word? And I have to tell you, I have heard so many non-answers and unsatisfactory proposed arguments about this during my time in seminary. But last semester, I had another one of those fascinating, fast-moving, infuriating, easy answer issuing teachers. And she changed the way I saw this messianic secret and even my own faith forever. Dr. Nancy Bedford teaches Christology at Garrett And this is a class I took because I was hoping that after four years of church, two of which were spent doing ministry and one of which was spent in seminary, I could finally get some straight fucking answers that I could live with on what I was supposed to believe about Jesus. That did not happen. But here's what she said about this messianic secret stuff. I wrote it down basically word for word for you. Um, Don't say that you know when you don't. Only when you say you don't know can you know. If, like the disciples, you think you know, you're probably doing it wrong, like the disciples, which Jesus gets pretty grumpy with the disciples throughout Mark. They generally fuck up quite a bit. That's the whole thing. Um, Now, I realize that on first pass, that kind of sounds like gibberish, but I think it actually has the power to be super liberating in this argument the messianic secret is jesus way of saying don't just assume that you've got it right never believe that you've got all the answers or that you are the conveyor of ultimate truth and most importantly never 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 stop asking questions don't be too sure of anything And if that's true, but as soon as we believe we've got all the answers, we don't actually have any of them, then we can give up on this idea of needing to arrive somewhere in order to call ourselves Christians. We can give up on having all the answers and instead focus on telling stories and asking questions and loving people like Jesus did. The gospels themselves, Bedford argues, just like Jesus' teachings, don't actually contain any concrete answers or strict definitions, just stories. Stories grow and move with us in a way that definitions just don't. And we've seen the consequences of mistaking stories for answers throughout the history of the church, including right now and not just in the places you're probably thinking of. I guess I came to seminary looking for answers, answers to questions my best friend asked me in a dark car driving home on a rainy December night years ago, to which I could only say, I'll let you know what I think after I finished the book, which of course turned out not to have very many answers at all. Answers to the increasingly probing questions she asks me each time my chosen career comes up because she loves me that much. Answers to the questions I keep asking myself. And if anything, all I've gotten here is more questions and some stories that speak to me. What I've come to realize on this journey is that faith itself by definition is freedom from having all the answers. It's giving up on ever being able to, which I'll admit I struggle with. It's admitting that we don't, can't know everything and telling the stories that matter anyway. The stories that have always been and always will be so much bigger than the contours of our minds and the gaps between our neurons and the words we share with each other can ever contain. The stories that show us again and again that in the end, whether we understand how or not, love wins. Friends, if you haven't gotten your communion elements, whatever they are, you can.